Welcome back to the Football Fitness Federation podcast. This is episode 92. This episode is actually with one of the first practitioners I ever came across in SNC, someone who uh, welcomed me into um, their their club at the time for my one of my first experiences within SNC, and it's Kev Paxton. And um, when Kev was at Nottinghamshire cricket. I went down and spent a bit of time with him. Um, I'm very grateful for the time I spent with him, and he gave me a great insight into professional sport. But Kev is now the head of academy sports science at Leicester City, and also the vice chair at UK SCA. So it was great to have Kev on, someone that I've wanted to get on for a long time, for obvious reasons, and I'm sure anyone that has come across Kev, worked with Kev or, or just seen the work he puts out knows the quality and um, the, the honesty that he always puts out in his work as well so it's great to have him on we spoke about his uh, career, his background um, he also gave some updates from the UK SCA we talked about making the most out of internships from an intern's perspective but also a club or a practitioner's perspective as well and we touched on his youth development philosophy. Uh, we spoke about structuring a multi-sport program. So some important factors you need to be aware of when when implementing multi-sport and um, some very uh, great like practical bits of advice that Kev has learned along his way in terms of using multi-sport as well. And then we also just went through the, the stages of the academy. So we called this episode Working With Children Throughout the Ages. And we did exactly that through the academy. So we went for each age group or each phase and talked about some of the key considerations that we make at each phase, um, some of the key focuses and some things we need to be aware of at each phase as well. So for anyone that's working with youth athletes, working in the academy setting, I think this is a great episode for you um, to draw from Kev's experiences. So I hope you enjoy the episode. Please, as always, share it. Make sure you subscribe as well. Subscribe on Spotify or iTunes and then as soon as these podcasts go out, you'll get them straight onto your phone or or whatever device you're listening on. Um, but please, as always, share the show. Give it a, a retweet on Twitter with a little tag with some of your key takeaways on it. Um, share it on Instagram, Facebook, or just send it out to friends, family, colleagues. Please share it. I would appreciate it and I know plenty of people do it for each episode and I, and I, I do really appreciate everything that you do for it. Um, but yeah, here is the episode with Kev. Welcome back to the Football Fitness Federation podcast. This is episode 92. I'm joined today by Kev Paxton, the head of Academy Sports Science at Leicester and vice chair at the UK SCA. So Kev, how are we doing? Yeah, not bad, Ben. Thanks for having us. Um, no, no problem at all, mate. It's good to have you on. How's things in, uh, in lockdown treating you? Yeah, it's interesting. It's a challenge, but, you know, embrace it. Uh, Homeschool's definitely been a challenge. Work from home's not been that bad, actually. It's been, I would say it's been harder because it's more administrative. It's more time-consuming tasks, providing content for the lads and the parents in the academy. Uh, Digital work requires a lot more effort. Than actually coaching in person, uh, I think miss coaching in person. The sooner we get back to that, the better. But no, yeah, so all in all, can't complain. Um, Leicester's a really good employer, so yeah, they've looked after us all. 
Yeah, awesome. We're going to dive into um, your philosophies on youth development and things like that in a little bit. But I just wanted to start out, just mention what you're doing currently. So do you want to just take us back through your career where you've been? Yeah, I mean, um, I think there's like, uh, like nowadays, there's this, this big thing about people that have been in the game a long time in sport have probably done the hard yards and done it the hard way. Um, I think... When I'm talking to other members of staff, I like to try to remind them that it isn't always easy and there's going to be obstacles in your way during your career. But having said that, that doesn't mean what we always used to do is right. So, I mean, I think back in the days when I started 21 years ago, I was lucky to have a great mentor in Dean Riddle, uh, who's over in the States at the moment. But it was hard. You know, you're giving time for free to be an intern. You're doing balancing your studies, balancing part-time work in the gym. Um loads and loads of part-time coaching hours, voluntary work at other, other areas as well. And I think that is important um, for, for young practitioners. And I did that for about a couple of years before I got lucky enough to, to, to get taken on at Sheffield United. And that really was the making of us. Um, that first that first job, I say, I was lucky I got a good, good mentor there for a few years before he left. Um, but having said that, I was also lucky that at the time, I had a complete blank canvas to do what I want, when I want. And looking back now, hindsight's a wonderful thing. But I would say we did a lot of really, really good things as a small unit of coaching team. But well, I also made a lot of mistakes um, that I only know about 15 years down the line, that what I did was wrong. Um, but I've certainly benefited from that now. And then, yeah, after about 10 years or so, I think, I again, obstacles kept coming up and I was applying for other jobs that I thought I was easily capable of doing. Again, in hindsight, I was probably a bit ignorant in that I wasn't ready for some of the bigger jobs, but I probably was ready, but my face didn't fit other jobs I was going for. So I think that's another message in your career that you, you don't just let those obstacles get you down. You try and rebuild, you look at what you need to get better at. You look at where you need to improve. Sometimes it's outside of the box areas, you know, relationship skills, management skills, MDT knowledge. It's not always knowledge in your own domain that gets you up through your career pathway. Um, but yeah, then after about 10 years, I moved. Uh, I'd, I'd always been interested in cricket. So I'd been doing some voluntary work at my local club, Derbyshire, while I was working at Sheffield. Um, got on well with the staff there. They didn't have a lot of money, so I couldn't push for, for paid work. But um, it gave me an actually a chance, an opportunity to work with different cultures, different nationalities, different you know, a lot of South African culture there, and that prepared me for my job at Knotts, which was multinational, right, all over the globe cricketers. So that was really, I think, a really big turning point because I was now in charge of a whole program, a whole club, and I was it was up to me from top to bottom to what we did. Um, well, I had to have a lot of flexibility with the way we work because of different cultures, different philosophies. Um, couldn't just package up what I'd done at Sheffield and and, and put it into place because it was a different sport, different people. So I learned a hell of a lot about individualisation of training, small group training there at cricket for about five, six years in the end. Uh, and then I went and moved to Leicester, which has been unbelievable for me. Um, Fantastic ownership group, fantastic club um, values. 
Uh, and really, it's not all been plain sailing, I'll be honest, because we had to build from the, from the bottom all the way up uh, with the academy. There wasn't much in place. First team was obviously well set up, but the, the academy was rooted in its traditions of, of technical work. There wasn't much sort of physical form support going on. So we had a lot of work to do to build it. It was hard work at times. You're thinking, oh, I've gone back three squares here, but you could always see light at the end of the tunnel. So, um, And lucky enough, we've had a lot of really good practitioners come through that pathway that have helped develop the programme. So I think ultimately my career has now gone full circle and it's I've become more of a teacher and mentor than a, but I'm still learning things, still learning and refreshing ways of doing stuff. So, Yeah, yeah I think one area to dive into, which I spoke about recently, is where you talked about like going into clubs and having a blank canvas and being able to have that impact and sort of being thrown in. That's quite an interesting um, way of thinking at the moment, isn't it? Because a lot of clubs now are going to have something in place, aren't they? So what, what's your sort of views on practitioners that are coming through? If you, if you take yourself back to when you started and practitioners are coming through in this current climate, there's not going to be, I mean, there's probably still a lot of opportunities, but there's not quite as many going into that blank canvas situation. Is there? No. I mean, I think back over the, over my career and I was lucky enough to have blank canvases everywhere I went. So, uh, Sheffield United, blank canvas, not cricket, blank canvas. Uh, even with some of the work I was doing with Game Changer Performance, Stop, Stop Up, Scratch Company, blank canvas. Um, some of my lecturing work blank canvas new modules um, it's only really Leicester that I'd kind of like some processes in place but even then it was we've got to create a program uh, I think what I did learn from Leicester is that there's always deep values ingrained in in organisations and if it doesn't fit what you want or what you prefer in your bias then you, you've still got to try and adapt. You can't just go, no, it's my way or the highway sort of thing. This is what it's done. It's always brought success. Success is dependent on the place, the current time and place you're at. So what, you know, uh, we had to take a lot of current, what we were doing and adapt it and refine it and make it better. Uh, I still think back to some of the stuff seven years, eight years ago when I joined Leicester and, me and Capesy, we're still doing some of the stuff that we've always done at Leicester, that they've always done at Leicester before I joined. But hopefully, what I've done since going in is brought a fresh outlook, fresh perspective, brought in new ideas, but also refined what 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 was the values and ethos and made it better. Um, not changed it. It's it, evolution, isn't it? Not revolution. Yeah, I think that's an important point, isn't it? Because we go sometimes we can go in a bit gung ho to situations without looking at the the sort of pre if there is anything in place previously, looking what is in place and then taking um things and, and sort of trying to tweak them, isn't it, into what we want. Yeah. I mean, just like what you just said, that's a great point. Like the other thing to bear in mind with all that is you you've only got one set of hands. And I've certainly over the years run myself right down to the to rock bottom energy levels and and motivation levels because I've tried to do everything myself. I've tried to take too much on. Uh, you, you've got to, well, I think what I've learned in uh, later life is you've got to let people try and drive their own areas and guide them rather than, than do it for them and show them what, what you think should be done. Um, but that takes that, time. 
I was going to say, do you think that ties into what you just said before about you seeing yourself more as a teacher and a mentor now? Yeah, I think you've got to have a lot of patience with that though. Um, and you've got to be in a secure environment where you know you've got time as well. So I accept at senior levels that like, you don't have that. Sometimes you go in, you go, if I'm going to die, I'm going to, I'm going to die by my own sword sort of thing. And you know, Whereas if you're going into a more secure academy environment where they've got a long-term plan, and you want staff to evolve as well as the player development program to evolve. You can't do it all on yourself. Um, it's a bit frustrating at times because you go, I've seen this before two or three times and I know what will happen if we do this. But then you kind of think, mm, maybe it won't in this environment and maybe it's up to other people to find a solution so they grow and develop as well. So like I say, it takes time and it takes patience to let the solution grow even if you think you've got a quick fix from your ex- previous experience yeah definitely and uh, and something else we we're going to dive into is um internships and looking at it from two different points of view so initially from a um postgrad or anyone that's going into an internship their point of view so what would you say has been some key considerations they've got to make to get the most out of an internship uh yeah, I mean, I've had uh, lots of conversations with lecturers at universities that are trying to set up internship programs, and but also students that are like wanting to apply for different programs. Um, ultimately, the main advice is don't sell yourself short by doing too many internships. So there comes a point where you go, right, if you're on your third year of doing an internship, should there be a different pathway you should be exploring to get yourself more employable? So I think when you're fresh out of uni and you've been hitting the books hard and you've been doing some part-time work, whatever it is, um, ideally in the industry to get yourself experience and money, but it might be out of the industry. It might be packaging in a warehouse. It might be working in a bar, cafe, what, you know, um, you've got to get money to get for a uni at the end of the day. So if you're fresh out of that and you're in that environment and you need applied experience and an internship, definitely. But I'd say seek it out wisely. Like one is, am I going to go into an internship and get some sort of professional accreditation or further academic accreditation out of it, ideally in a sponsored program? Um, If it's a non-sponsored program, but you're looking for like a sandwich placement or you're looking for someone to say, right, while you're doing your studies, can you do two days a week support work? We'll give you expenses. We'll give you, you know, CPD. I think that's, that's fine. If it's like you're going in full time and you're not getting sponsored and that, that, that's a bit out of order for, you know, and the UKCA is keen on, and so is Basie's on, on making sure that doesn't happen. Um, ultimately, like once you've done that, and you've had that taster of internships, that's the, then that's the tricky area then. It's like, I, I think I'm employable. I think I could do a good job. But then there's tens of thousands of people in the industry that are thinking the same. So what do you do to make yourself different? And sometimes it takes a second internship. Uh, my advice is if you can combine that with part-time support work somewhere or paid work or if, you know, ideally go and, think outside the box so is it part-time sports coaching is it part-time community coaching is it part-time work in the gym as a PT um, 
you know, you've got to get that applied paid work, even if it's not working with elite athletes in a professional organization, you can still get employable work. And, and, you know, I always look at someone who's applied for an internship and if they've done two or three already, I think this is not probably right. Um, and a lot of times we'll try and just contact them and say, you know, what are your thoughts? What are you thinking? Why do you want to come here? And obviously they'll say, we want to learn and develop off, blah, 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 and, and get and, and work towards these accreditations sort of thing. But you kind of think, well, you may be better off just maybe doing that in your own time and getting some paid work, however it is. Um, so yeah, that, that's the advice is if it's early on in your career, save up some money and dive in, uh, and get as much applied experience as you can without being exploited. So try and seek out the better um, internships. Uh, certainly the governing bodies will work to try and reduce those non-ethical internships. If you're later on in down that pathway and you've, say, already got a postgraduate degree, uh, then it's like, can you do a bit of a hybrid, paid work, casual support? And if you find yourself that you've done two years full-time internships and, you, and you're like, I just need a full-time job, that's when you've got to go, right, maybe I just need to just, uh, I just, I don't, I don't see the benefit in going for that third internship. I think you're better off just going, right, let's look for some, what can I do outside of the box to make myself employable? Um, sometimes that'll, that'll get your head on your CV more that, so than doing three, four internships. No, that I think that's great advice. And, and to just flip that in terms of like an employer or a head of performance or whoever is setting up an internship from a club, what would you say um, to those guys in terms of if, there's, if there isn't an internship program in place and they wanted to put something in place from your experience, and I know you guys, you guys want to uh, run them at Leicester, I think I'm right in saying. Um, yeah. So what would your advice be in that situation? Well, I mean, I look at the if you look at how many graduates come out of university every year and how many decent universities there are uh, across the UK at the moment, there's, if you're in an organisation, football club, rugby club, cricket club, tennis, netball, the EIS has got links to the universities, you know, the, the, the links are there. There's no reason to not have a good internship programme tied in with a university. Um, absolutely no reason whatsoever. So it's just a case of making that dialogue with the universities and saying, like, this is how we see it happening. How do you guys see it happening? Can we work together? Can we get a blueprint down on paper? We've done it successfully with University of Derby. We've now done some work with Loughborough University uh, SNC programme as well. And I know other clubs have done reasonable stuff with other universities. Uh, you know, Cardiff Met, uh, University of Wolverhampton, Birmingham, Leeds Met, Carnegie, there's, lo there's loads of uh, decent, you know, Southampton, there's decent university programs. Um, I suppose the, uh, I've lost my train of thought now, rambling on. No, I, it'll, it'll come what back I asked me. was just your advice. So if someone's trying, if they want to set an internship program up, um, what, would, what would be the first steps and what do they need to consider as well? Right, yeah, sorry. Uh, so first steps are literally make that link with the university. You've got to, get, you've got to have that contact. Um, you want to have a service level agreement or blueprint, like this is how many hours 
support we envisage uh, the internship program taking place on site. This is the accreditation. Um, this is the accreditations that they're going to learn and work towards while they're on site. Um, what is then the funding package for the formal academic qualification as well? So you've got to have this blueprint of like, what are they going to get academically? Um, what are they going to work towards professionally or vocationally? Is it UKCA? Is it BASES? Um, is it psych? Is it analysis, performance analysis? Um, and then can you tie it into a formalized funding program? Uh, now there's, I think in the future, there'll be a lot of work in developing the apprenticeship using the apprenticeship levy. So that'd be advice as well. Can you, can you look at that? The, there may be solutions with local universities where you can apply for apprenticeship levy funding for courses and take on an actual formal apprentice, um, which, you know, that, that's probably the future. No, that's interesting. That, that'll definitely be, uh, I'm sure that'll perk up a few ears in terms of developing a few more opportunities, won't it? Um, I think it'd be great, Gab, because that, that's something obviously we wanted to touch on in terms of internships but a big part of this podcast I wanted to delve in with you is in terms of youth development um, and you can go as broad or as specific as you want with this but I wanted to start with just quite a general question in terms of your um, philosophy your approach to youth development and some of your beliefs yep uh, I think I've been fairly outspoken on this that my philosophy of youth development is to just encourage and engage all through the year, through the pathway, uh, but keep it simple. Um, so if you think about it, when someone starts at nine years old in the academy or even younger now, it's five, six, seven, eight pre-academy, you know, there's, it's, it's so early to be specializing in a sport. It's ridiculous. Um, you know, it's a 12 year, 10, 12, 14 year pathway. Like, and it's four days a week, five days a week, 40 weeks a year, 45 weeks a year. It's like a ridiculous amount of time and sessions. And I, I think I feel sometimes that practitioners get so focused on what is the most effective way of delivering gains in strength, power, speed, agility because they read research, because they look at social media, because they don't want to be seen to be faffing around. It's like, I want to do the best possible uh, evidence-based program because that makes me the best possible practitioner. Like, and you go, yeah, but they're seven years old. Like, come on. But what are they going to do in 10 years' time when they're 17? They're going to be bored before they even get to there. They'll leave the sport. So... Sometimes you've got to take your science head off and go and just park it for three or four years and go engagement, um, people skills, coaching skills, regressions, progressions. You know, I think with, with the younger age groups, like the schoolboy age groups, nines to twelves, even, yeah, let's leave it at twelves. That's about just having a variety of experiences, but you've got to have a plan. So there's no point just going and throwing mud out I've seen this, someone do this, so I'll do this this week and next week I fancy doing a bit of that and I'll do that. And You've got to have like a plan over the year and you've got to have a plan over the years to progress it. But it's got to be simple. So if you've got an under 11 that is um, flying and doing really, really well, 
keep testing them with some slightly harder variations of what they're doing. But don't go, right, I'm going to chuck him into the under-13s program because he's 11. If you've got an under-11 that's struggling because they're new to the program, then you've got to maybe have a subtle variation to pull it back to get a bit, so they get a bit of success so they don't feel, oh, I can't do this and they freeze up and they're worried and they get stressed because they can't do what some of the other guys are doing. You know, and then you've got to disguise all that with a bit of fun, fun and games at the end. So if you look at like a progression and regression is a key thing through the schoolboy age groups. Like that's what I want to do, but I might try and nudge a few that way and I might try and pull a few back this way to give them some success and confidence. And then over the whole delivery schedule for those younger age groups, it's about like disguising. If you look at the analogy of chucking a few peas and vegetables into kids' food so they don't see them, so they get their greens without noticing. So it's like have a few fun games, try and throw in a few drills to just teach them, don't overload them, make sure it's a bit enjoyable, make sure you get a few simple points out, chuck it into a game and have a finisher or a comp- competitive activity at the end because they do like competition. Like, I really don't buy into the fact that we shouldn't be getting kids to compete. Like, they want to win. They want to. They always want to get a trophy. They always want to get points. They want some sort of scoring system because um, they're competitive little beasts. They really are. Like, so it's important to try and get that. But in a fun game, you see, you see the difference, don't you? When you put something competitive into a program, the intent that they have compared to just just something where there isn't any competition and you're just sort of going through the motions, the intent is completely different, isn't it? Especially at that age. Yeah. And there's loads of great drills out there where you see on social media people making things interactive, uh, decision-making drills for agility. And then you get the other side that, that just go, right, well, you know, doing drills for drills' sake is a waste of time. And, and I go, yeah, it may be for like an eight-week program or a 12-week program. If I, if I had an athlete that came and said, here's a stack of money, train me for 12 weeks, and if, you do re- and if I do really, really well, you get double the money, then I'm going to go for like a real bang, intense program with proven successes to try and get gains. But then if you never see them after that again, that's all right. But if you've got to work with people for 10 years... You can't just keep doing the same 12-week program for 10 years. It'll, sooner or later, it'll dry up. So you've got to chuck a few things. And if, if kids like jumping through ladders and they like jumping over hurdles and they like running with connected to bungees, all right, yeah, it's not proven athletic science for imp- increasing acceleration times, but it doesn't matter because they've got a beaming smile on it at the end of it. Um, and that's, that- that's what matters. That's so important at that age as well, isn't it? Because if they go into those sessions and they're enjoying going into, whether it's a sports hall, whether it's a gym, wherever you're going, rather than thinking, oh, I've got to go and do a session with Kev or whoever it is, like you don't want that, do you? You want them to enjoy going to it and look forward to going to it. So if you're doing that with those types of drills or whatever, that's the important side of it, isn't it, for longevity? Yeah, absolutely, 100%. And I only know that now through... 15, 20 years later, mm. because I've made those mistakes. I was like, I'm going to try and dilute my under-12s training from what I was doing with the under-18s. And I was doing, and you, I'm kind of thinking, nah, this is 
this is not right. And then you start changing, you start adding a few different things and you add in a few multi-sport and a bit of dodgeball. And it's not that you don't then do some plyometric drills or some footwork drills that are controlled and getting them to pick their feet up quick and put their feet down quick and change direction, change height, change pace. You still do all that in a controlled manner, but then you add in a few little fun games afterwards to see if, to see if they can still move their feet and concentrate. And it's all like varying that perception action cycle from control to open um, drills, sorry, close to open skills. Just wanted to give a couple of updates on our online community. So for anyone that doesn't know, we have an online community at footballfitfed.com um, and there's the community tab on the website. And it's basically where we have uh, numerous webinars. We have presentations from our networking events from all sorts of different practitioners um, all hosted on an online platform. So it gives you the opportunity to grow your network, to interact with fellow coaches, but also get access to all of our resources in terms of our webinars and network meeting presentations. So I'm delighted to say that we've just confirmed uh, a new some new webinars. So they're going to be out very soon. So as soon as we get the details on those, um, we'll release the practitioners that are involved and the subjects as well that they're going to cover. But I'm really excited about those. But there's also over eight hours of webinars available now on the community from all different practitioners on all sorts of different subjects. The most recent ones were from Harry Routledge talking about the high-performance environment. We've got uh, Dr. Will Abbott from Brighton um, talking about how research informs practice. And there's also um, SNC coach from Bristol City, Hamish Munro, did a webinar for us on velocity-based training in professional football. So they're the latest ones. There's also plenty of others on there, as well as the network meeting presentations as well. So we've got presentations from um, coaches like Head of Sports Science at Celtic, Jack Naylor, Head of Academy Sports Science at Celtic, Oliver Morgan. Um, we've got Adam Kerr, who's now at Leeds United. Um, Dr. Will Abbott's also got a network meeting presentation on there as well. So loads of different practitioners with presentations on the community too. And you can get access to all of this by going to footballfitfed.com and click the community tab at the top. If you sign up there, it gives you one free month on the community so you can see exactly what it's all about. After that, it is only £4.99 per month and you will get access to all the current content as well as all the future webinars. And when we can get going again with the network meetings, not quite sure when that's going to be just yet, but when we can get going with that, all the future network meeting presentations will be going on there as well, regardless whether you can make the events or not. So go and sign up, footballfitfed.com, click the community tab and sign up there and that will give you your free month. Here is part two of the podcast with Kev. Oh, definitely. And that, that was another thing that I wanted to uh, talk about is because this has been spoke about loads in terms of the multi-sport approach, but how we structure it like how because you like you said before it's not just a case of just throwing random things in when we see it on social media or we think of a um a sport that might work well at this time like we we do need a bit of structure to it don't we so how do you guys um structure it and what are some considerations we need to make in terms of multi-sport yeah i think this uh, my, my time in cricket was amazing to be honest because like It'd be a long slog. Some of the, I think some of the away trips, we were doing seven, eight, nine days away from home. Get up, at, have your breakfast at the hotel, get to the ground, 
hour and a half practice before, bit of fitness before with some. Uh, but then once the game starts, that's it. All you can do is maybe go and do a bit of netting or do a bit of gym work. So you had that little hour and, and there's a lot made about footballers play, uh, cricketers playing football pre-game. But we used to do a load of sports. Yeah, we had big inflatable goals that we'd put up sometimes, but we wouldn't just play football, we'd play handball. Uh, I won't call, tell you what, you know, some of the lads used to call it. And Swanee had a great nickname for it, but it's not for before the nine o'clock watershed. Um, we we had some amazing little dodgeball tag games um, that we used to play. Um, and it was just, just, they enjoyed being kids for an hour. And this was like 30-year-old, you know, aging cricketers that had been played international cricket, running around like stupid little kids playing games. Uh, but they just loved it. And it, it was a bit of excitement in the day and a bit different because then it was like sit on the balcony, watch cricket for a bit then have to go and bat or, go, you know, go and stand in the field for eight hours. It's like you needed that variety. So we had loads of different games that we picked up. I think going into Leicester now, um, and we had a big multi-sport program at Sheffield United, so there's nothing I've learned from putting the two together now. Um, is at Leicester, it's play a few games but then I have activities in between as well. So whether it's technical work with the coaches, whether it's physical work um, with the physical staff, I think what the big mistake is like, say you've got a squad of 18 um, for a training session, 18 kids in, say for example, in the 12s or, or sometimes more than that. If you play a game of handball or you play a game of uh, tag rugby, uh, or we play like variations of American football slash tag. Um, if you've got 18 kids on a field and you actually stand back and watch the game, the number of interactions that some of the lads do is minimal. Now, when they do get an interaction, it's really, really good. They get the ball in the hand, they've got to work their feet, they've got to change direction, change a height, dodge, evade an opponent, pick a gap, run through it all sorts of different force velocity curve stuff going on. But it might only happen once every three minutes. So I think one thing I've learned is when you're playing multi-sport games is to maybe split your groups up. So you have three team sessions where you have two teams playing, one team doing drills or uh, yeah, split them into four quarters and one's doing some little technical work with the coaches, one's doing some physical work, two teams are playing. And you cut your numbers down because then you really get like you don't get much rest off the ball and you have to keep working and working all the time. So that that's a good way of doing it. It's having those little sandwich fillers on the side for the main multi-sport game that's going on. And that's a great point because anyone that's done it and played like basketball or handball, like you say, you'll have like a group of players that are on it, aren't they? They want the ball all the time. They're demanding it. like, And they're work rate is going to be so much higher than some others that just aren't that interested and, and that won't yeah. have the ball that much. So like splitting the groups down like that must, must be much better. I suppose you still got to control it, haven't you? Because it, this, there will be certain players that will still take over and want and, and get a bit more workload in. But um, yeah, I think that that's a, a great point in terms of multi-sport because it can just turn into a, a bit of a mess at the same time, can't it? Yeah, it's confidence with the lads as well. If they're not confident, they'll sit on the fringes and 
and try and have a good look at the game. But then after three minutes has gone or four minutes or however long you play, they stand and touch the ball. So they haven't done anything. Um, so you got in, you got to encourage, uh, and it's great social stuff, you know, four corner model, you can get some, put some conditions on where everyone's got to touch the ball, that sort of stuff. Um, so they've got to interact. They've got to, you're forcing them to play little combinations, um, before they try and score. No, definitely. I think it'd be good now to move up the age group. So going into, um, like more youth development phase. So, just looking at that as a whole in terms of your approach, your philosophy, what are some key things you're looking to get out of those ages? I think as soon as they start hitting growth spurts, um, 12s, 13s, 14s, 15s, there's still some real late developers that are struggling and you've got to look after them. I think the key message to everyone in the MDT there is it doesn't always need to look like the sport because... Um, that's the one thing they can't do. They can't react. They can't change direction quickly. They can't change their pace quickly. Uh, they can't do really high mechanical work. What they can do is they can do real controlled stability. Uh, that's probably when S&C programs should increase. But of course, people go, oh, he's got a growth. He's in his growth phase. I'm worried about Osgoods. I'm worried about Severs early on or you know, uh, so we're going to try and restrict and reduce his load. And I'm going, really? It, actually, that's probably the, the worst thing you can do is we, we don't want to restrict the load. We need to substitute the load. And we need to change the stimulus going into those players. Uh, don't do less, do something different. And that's probably where you can, the, the probably the, the trap is with the coaches have been consistently always wanting to drive quick, high tempo skills and fun and excitement and a buzz around training and then they can't work out why the lads just hit a brick wall and can't do that so it's that adaptability of the coach to go right maybe some of the guys need to be on uh, it becomes a lot more regression based does someone have to just sit as a floater does someone have to sit as a target man for part of the session but when they're doing or when they're doing like little box possession transition drills does somebody then pull out and do some individual snc or individual technical in a controlled environment for 20 minutes so they're not actually missing out they're just doing something a bit different um, i think from a snc point of view you've got to be really careful that for these phases it's about challenging movement skills through different loading positions so if it's a, a step up, is it a lateral step up? Is it a, a step up with a knee lift? Is it a contralateral step up? Is it a putting the load in different positions, arms out in front, arms out to the side, arms above the head? Can you pick real simple loading mechanisms? Medicine balls are great. You know, if you think you've got two, four, six, eight, ten 10 kilogram medicine ball, you can challenge the movement as well just by adding a little bit of increase in load. But I'd always favour the movement test rather than the load test. So can you change the actual body positions they get in to see if they can still maintain stability in the SNC exercises? No, I think that's a great point. And obviously in terms of um, 
how easy it is to transport around as well. Medicine balls are going to be a lot easier than taking any any um, like barbells, dumbbells, things like that, aren't they? So it's going to be a lot easier to transport and, and move about to. Yeah, certainly around training ground, you can do stuff pitch side as well. Yeah, um, definitely. And to move up again, Kev, to the top end of the academy, then because you talked then about more focus on positions rather than like force and external weight. So is this something now that we're going to transition into when we, when we talk about the, um, the top phase? Yeah, I mean, ideally, when you've been running the program for a few years and guys have been in the system, the PDP is fit. It's pretty easy because by then you've ingrained a desire and a culture for them to progress and assess their training. Um, digitizing the programs been massive improvements. You know, it's their it's their mode. They go to an iPad. They can use those templates better than they would if you pen and paper no interest in that whatsoever so um yeah it becomes more sort of self-guided self-policed in the good ones i think the issues are the ones that have not been in the system that come in late that maybe have had a completely different philosophy they've got no underpinning movement skills which is why they've been released from a previous program and you pick them up and you think well can we turn them around they've got something can we you know um so it's that that becomes a challenge, and then you have to go for that regression mentality. But but at the same time, you haven't got the time now. You've got a time pressure of the. You need to regress to get them to do something, but at the same time, like in two years' time, if they haven't done it, they're out. So you've got a time pressure that you've got to start hitting more sensitive areas in the force velocity curve. Can we get them um, a bit stronger eccentrically? Can we? actually improve on the rate of force development that they're working on you know can we give them feedback through things like gym aware uh, so that they can actually start to see that they need to shift weight quicker um, opt to jump reactive strength can they actually rebound off the floor because the, ultimately you've got to have that objectivity to keep driving their desire to improve because if they don't they're more likely out the door at the end of it um, which is the the harsh truth, the harsh reality. No, it is getting to that crunch time, isn't it? And that's where, um, like you say, the the history of the player and the, I suppose the um, the training age becomes really apparent, doesn't it? And like you say, it's, they might have gone through a program where it's completely different philosophy, um, possibly different country, different cultures, and everything. So there are a lot of challenges that come into a player stepping into the program at that point. Yeah. And I think the the other thing is we get even more obsessed with uh, availability because of that there's time pressure. So you don't want players to miss sessions and un, undue amount of sessions. So you tend to be a lot more conservative with your approach to lo- to adding stimulus into the lads because I don't want to overcook them because then I'll risk them missing two three months. And that could be, you know, contract ending three months. In reality, you know, we obviously try to support people that have been missed through long-term injury and help them give them that extra time. But in the reality is that it, it's they need to have that consistency of training over the two years to catch the eye, to, to learn the movements, to learn the tactics. And if they're sat in the gym with a long-term injury, 
it, it's really tough then to get someone to come back to then actually show that they can make the grade. Um, so there is that that fear that we probably sometimes become a bit too restrictive. And again, I think that's where if you've had a decent experience in the YDP, uh, then the player themselves will go, well, actually, I just, I'm happy to do something. I just need to do something different. Uh, and they can start to gauge the practitioners on what they feel comfortable doing um, rather than just, oh, I, don't, I can't do anything because I don't want to get injured. Yeah. yeah, there's a lot that goes into that, isn't there, in terms of trust of the programme and practitioners and that's built over, and confidence as well, isn't it, that they, it is just a shift of focus, not that you're taking a back seat and we're going to focus on these players, it's that you're doing, yeah. you're doing something different to still make progression. I think if you, it's a great bit of advice there for, for practitioners. If you want to engage in us, relationships with players, I've said this to a lot of staff, if you want to improve your relationship with the squad, with certain players, sometimes just by doing work with others, they'll see that and go, actually, yeah, he's all right. He's, he cares. He's, you know, he's doing extra work with so-and-so that's maybe out of favour or doing extra work with so-and-so that's struggling with injury at the moment. And while they're, they'll see that and, you know, don't think that players in an elderly changing room, PDP changing rooms, don't talk to each other. They're quite, they've got a lot of time sitting, chatting about what's going on within a football club. Um, so, yes, yeah, sometimes you can improve your relationships with others by working with everyone in a consistent way uh, and not favouring individuals. I think that's a great point because we spoke about loads on the podcast, building relationships and communication with players. But I think that's the first time that that's come up is, is that that can have such a big impact, can't it? When your teammates are taking notice of the work that's going on elsewhere and with other players, I think that's a great point. Yeah. No, that's yeah, nice. Um Kev, I wanted to touch on as well, um, which we didn't do at the start, in terms of the UKSCA. So... Yep. Is, are there any updates you can give? Anything that, that uh, the listeners need to be aware of in the coming weeks, months? Well, I mean, I think uh, obviously coronavirus has had a significant impact on a lot of organisations. Uh, we had some major plans planned as a, as a board for the conference, uh, for CPD workshops moving forward, which has just took a big you know, slap in the face. Obviously, we can't do it. Um, at the moment so we've had to put a lot of stuff on hold uh, I think what Rich Clark's been doing with the webinars has been hopefully great um, and people like yourselves doing webinars it's, that's we really need this during this uh, period more so than, than normal because you've got to keep people engaged mentally um, so yeah we tried to do that uh, obviously the um, AGM's coming up in August, so the board, this board election's coming up in August. Um, hopefully some of you guys will be voting for us because I'd love to stay on the board again for another term uh, and, and finish off some of the stuff we've started. Um, we're looking at, um, over the last few months, we've had significant uh, meetings about increasing the board uh, and looking at the, what the board can do to impact on equality, diversity, and inclusion uh, within sport, so that's um, that should be coming out soon. A message um, 
from from the UKC as well on that. Please don't think that that's a, a gut reaction to uh, recent events um, uh, that, that have occurred because we've been planning this for quite a while now. Uh, but obviously, it's, it, the release of it is due to the timings of the, the board elections in August. Uh, it just so happens that it's tied in with uh, a major um, events that have happened with the Black Lives Matter campaigns, which is I'm totally, totally behind. Um, yeah, what else? CPD, I said, we're, we're just trying to look at ways we can engage with the membership better and support the membership. Uh, UKCIQ has been a, a huge resource that we put a lot of effort into. Um, so hopefully that's supporting members that are already accredited, that don't need to go on the workshops, don't need to go on so much as some of the um, CPD events that they feel they might need just more personalised approach to their development. Um, we I've looked at um, forming links with bases. Um, that's a future links there with, the, with bases in terms of uh, reviewing our accreditation process to tie in with them uh, a bit better. We've uh, got a major accreditation review on, on the way in terms of our professional standards that we've tied in with Simspur. So that's, unfortunately, that took a little bit of a hit. Um, but that's that's been being worked on at the moment and hopefully that'll that'll come good to have that that chartered status for an SNC coach um, will really help the profession in terms of um, tying in with uh, the NGB links that we've got so we've done some major links with NGBs in different sports cricket rugby uh, hopefully some of the Olympic sports uh, athletics to try and improve those standards professional standards and employability with through links with the NGBs I uh, can't really think of much else really safe to say there's plenty going on though and plenty in the pipeline yeah I mean we're, we're having regular online meetings we've got regular chats going on um, so just when I think I've got a moment of headspace in between work at Leicester and craziness at home then you can see emails come through but I, you know, I wouldn't have it any other way it's it's, it's, I've always wanted to contribute and give back and, and everyone on the board's similarly like strong desires to improve the profession so it's just a really it's a really nice time at the moment and ho- hopefully touch what it'll carry on in, in into another term yeah I encourage people when does when when's the um the voting uh because um emails will be going out to the membership soon I think uh, it's going to be the end of August they look to um to, to elect new new board members myself Pete Mundy terms are finishing and hopefully there'll be uh, there's going to be a new board position coming out as well awesome uh, I encourage people two. to keep an eye out on uh, on emails and that to watch out for that but in terms of yourself Kevin if anyone's got any questions you want to reach out about anything we've mentioned in the episode is there anywhere that's uh, good to do that yeah I mean um I've got my personal email on my on my LinkedIn account, so uh, direct message me through Twitter if needs be as well. I mean, please don't feel offended if I don't get back straight away. Sometimes you just miss messages because, like this morning, I'm digging up the garden and I see it and my hands are all dirty and I go, oh, well, I'll reply to that later. And when I get in, I completely forget about it because the kids are having Royal Rumble or, you know, all sorts of stuff cracking off. <laughs> 
and, you, <laughs> and then you just suddenly remember, oh no, I didn't reply to that. So yeah, no, awesome. Well, I appreciate you coming on, mate. I know I know you're really busy, so it's great to fit that in. Um, it's been a long time coming, this one. So thank you very much for 